0: Gary, good to talk to you. How are you doing today?
1: We're great. How are you?
0: Good. First uh, question is, how are uh, you and your family um, handling everything? And I know you uh, you teach a class at Georgetown. Are, are you doing that this semester? So how, how are things?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, uh, there's a lot to be grateful for right now. Uh, and the the uh, global pandemic certainly allows us to put things into perspective. Uh, I've got my daughters and my wife at home. Um, they are all doing their classes online. My wife is uh, seeing patients online, and I am working from home. And I teach at Georgetown, and my classes are have moved to Zoom, uh, like everybody else's. And I'm learning a lot. I think I think there's some good goodness that'll come from this is in addition to all of the, um, you know, the, the damage and destruction, I think, I think will come out of this, uh, learning, learning some new skills. And I think that's where, uh, where my family is right now is we're, we're thinking about what, what the benefits and positives we can make of this might be.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great point. I'm teaching a class with George Mason myself. And, yeah. um, the good news is that the students are, engaged and, um, you know, we, we do have exchanges It's a once a week class, but the, you know, the bottom line is it's, it's no substitute for, for interpersonal communication. But as you say, we're learning a lot from these technologies and it'll make us better as we go forward. If this is something we have to rely on, hopefully only from time to time.
1: Right. Right. I I agree. So,
0: um, I've been wanting to do this for a bit. You were kind enough to uh, send me a a preview uh, version of your book, The Economics of Violence. And um, one of the things that struck me, well, a number of things struck me that I want to ask you about. As you know, my world is, uh, and it's partially your world, but your world is broader, but my world of AML-CTF, we're always looking for uh, different approaches, angles, information that can better shape our um, deterrence and being proactive in in a space that has evolved so much over over these these many years and um, one of the things that uh, thematically that you go through in the book and correct me if I'm making this too simplistic but a criticism of policymaking and a criticism of the what I would call the national security infrastructure not that they're not working really hard, all of them, to try to address terrorism and money laundering and financial crime and, every, and all the other uh, activities, sadly, that go on, but that they're missing opportunities. And so I wanted to sort of open this up first to wh- what are the biggest opportunities that they're missing? Because I don't disagree with the thing that we've always been critical of in the AML community. was that We've always felt that our agency partners – didn't seem to partner you know lack of a better choice <laughs> right. much as we'd like them to even though we respect what they do and you've taken that to a level that i had not seen before
1: yeah great john thanks for um, first of all thanks for ha- uh, having me on your uh, your podcast here i'm a i'm a big fan of of yours and all the work that you've done for, for many years in this field and and i've spent my career in this field as well so to the extent that i'm i'm critical i'm i'm critical in a in a, in a self-critical way, uh, I'm a part of the problem as much as anybody else. And I'm trying to um, take a step back and offer a, a scientific approach, a scientific method for thinking about violence, corruption, coercion, fraud, crime. And with, an F, with, a, with a goal of helping us to better understand the world as it really is, and if we can better understand then we can better combat these illicit activities and let me start with an anecdote i and i lay this out in the book but i started my career in the us navy and uh uh trained to defeat the soviet navy in major battles at sea and my first job out of college was the gulf war where you know we had a major military operations uh in iraq um uh and after that, those first tours, I came back to the to the uh, to the Pentagon, and then I went uh, to the Senate, and I was National Security Advisor in the Senate, and I started to be confronted with issues of of suicide terrorism. And I thought back over my career in the national security world, and I knew I was totally unequipped and unable to address suicide terrorism because I knew how to launch Tomahawk missiles from a thousand miles away to take out air defense systems. And that's totally irrelevant in a world of of suicide terrorism. And this began my journey of thinking about illicit actions and actors and networks as a function of human behavior and the application of behavioral science towards towards violence, coercion, and crime. Um, and so, as opposed to and this is where the criticism of the the national security infrastructure comes into play, um, we've built these institutions coming out of the Cold War to think about well there's you know there are drug traffickers and there are insurgents and there are terrorists and there are human traffickers and and we have institutions that treat these actions as distinct phenomena. but if you take the behavioral science approach you can see that they're all different manifestations of the exact same phenomena, which is uh, the fundamental human nature and the human condition. And we can make much more sense out of crime, insurgency, and terrorism when we think about them along a continuum of human behavior. And then that the implications of that are that we need to think about the structures of how we address organized crime. Um, I think we could be smarter about it. And that includes the AML and, uh, uh, you know, threat finance and counterterrorist finance regimes.
0: You know, um, as I go through the book and, and, and part of the way you cover this is you look at three uh, dramatic examples of uh, individuals that we are all well aware of, Pablo Escobar, Joseph Kony, and Osama bin Laden. And you, you sort of walk through each and how they um, used used violence, or, or when they used violence, and a couple things that struck me that I made notes of as I was going through the book. You make this, and I realize everything is not a generalization, so I'm not putting words in your mouth. But you, you've made a statement early on in the book that insurgents are not bar- barbarians, and my question to you is. Really? Not some of them? Because, and and again, it's not fair because your analysis is they're looking at the market. Is violence going to be the most effective way of getting what we want? So I get all that. But I also think not being trained like you are, there are some people out there who are, or violence is an option that they don't dismiss ever. And um, you may be right. And your research seems to point to say that they, they use it when, it's gonna be the best way to get from A to B or, or however. But don't you believe, again, generalizations are inappropriate, I get it, but that there are some insurgents or there are some of these individuals that are barbaric and violence to them not only doesn't mean anything, it's it's sort of a default when everything else is equal. Is that fair? Or again, obviously, like I said, walk it's, walk through how you yeah, got where you
1: got. It's so, totally fair. It's a really great observation, and it gives me an opportunity to explain what I think is a really uh, important idea in the book. Um, it, and just to take a step back, to me, I, I, you know, I have, I'm an I'm an economist. I think about human behavior in. Uh, an interesting and sort of you know the way economists think about the world, and um, part of that is it's a perspective, so thinking about the world through an economic lens is is something that takes practice. I think some people um, you know study it um, some people have it naturally, but um, what i'm going to suggest john is a is an economic lens for 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 answering the question that you've just asked about barbarians um first is absolutely evil exists in the world i don't doubt that one bit and in fact that's a part of why that i do what i do for a living my my vocation is um getting up every day thinking about how people engage in evil acts in the world and seeing how i can help empower people who combat that that's that's what i do with my life that's what i've always done with my life with my professional life. Um, so, so, so I stipulate the fact that evil exists. However, I'm interested in successful firms, firms that engage in violence, but engage in violence over time. And if you, if you can come on that journey with me, so then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, uh, firms that engage in violence, coercion, corruption, uh, terrorism, but they're firms, they're led by entrepreneurs and they, they participate in competitive markets. And if you, can, if you can make that leap with me, so now we're not talking about criminals, insurgents and terrorists, we're talking about entrepreneurs leading firms. Then you have to go back to your question about uh, some people just like to kill, some people just like to blow things up. I would argue that the formula for a successful firm is the firm and the entrepreneur that understands violence is a cost of doing business. Very seldom is violence, a revenue generator for the firm, but it's a cost. And if you spend all of your time on, on spending money, you will go out of business and you will not be a persistent player in the market. I'm interested in the successful players in the market. I'm interested in, you know, why Osama bin Laden leading Al Qaeda, um, Became as successful as he did and why after we defeated al-qaeda in iraq um, al Baghdadi and the islamic state rose up and took its place to me those are interesting questions and and that's where i that's where i would argue that these in general are firms led by people who understood violence was a cost center not a profit center and and it doesn't mean that they weren't evil or there isn't evil in the world it just means that you Even if you're a bad actor, you can't just go kill everybody because that's not good business.
0: Okay. So um, the other part of this that was fascinating to me is just being a total outside observer to the three examples that you use The examples of Joseph Kony and bin Laden and their utilization of religion or misutilization obviously none of us are suggesting that uh, how they characterize religion is remotely the way most do so so i'm not i'm not stipulating that they were correct but when you talked about coney um, and the numbers are just mind boggling the number of uh, children and, and women that were and girls that were impacted by what they did but there was something in the book that said something to the effect that rather than uh, using that as religion as motivating reasons for violence, you said he would rely, Coney would rely on ethnic ties and religious imagery just as a tool. I I would stipulate that I 100% understand that point because they're not, in my view, they're not religious people. They're using religion uh, as a tool. So so I'm assuming that was your point. So you were in, in a way agreeing with me, somebody who doesn't know this space at all saying, yes, we read in many places that they would use religion going against the infidels or that Coney was this somehow mythic figure. When in reality, they both knew that using religion was going to get some people to follow them. And so they weren't religious. It was just, as you say, a tool to get to a means to an end as it were.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So religion is a tool. Ethnicity is a tool. um, Various, uh, messages of, of injustice, um, are tools. And there's this, there's this underlying human instinct to divide into us versus them. And uh, uh, social science, literature, philosophy, lo- lots of academic disciplines talk about this um, this innate drive towards us versus them or tribalism or um, you know, just picking teams and picking sides. It's something that humans are hardwired to do. So if you're operating in an environment where there's an opportunity to gain power, there's a power vacuum and you want to challenge for power and you want to organize, um, you have to come up with narratives which get people to join your side. And religion or religious identity is is often a very nice and powerful way to do that so in the joseph coney story he wanted he he got shunned uh by the the you know the the woman who was kind of politically dominant and so he decided that um he wanted to challenge her for political dominance and so in order to do so he needed to have a story uh that was in part based upon a religious identity also an ethnic identity Now, what I'm not going to say is I'm not going to say he wasn't religious. I'm going to say that it's, and this is a strange thing to say, and it it might sort of provoke you, John, but uh, in the readers in general, Um, I'm, I would go so far as to say, I don't really care if the entrepreneur is religious or not. I just know that they're going to use religion as a part of their story because it's good business to do so. So, Kony may or may not have seen himself as a pious person and same for Osama bin Laden, uh, same for Pablo Escobar, but religion played an important role in their ability to, uh, organize and to coalesce people behind their movement. They needed more than that, but it certainly tends to be an important part of the story. If you think about organizations throughout the world and throughout history, Organizations that successfully engage in violence over time very often have a religious component to the group identity.
0: Right. Yeah. I think you make that pretty clear in the book. Another part of the book that I found interesting, um, you go back and look at parallels to other criminal organizations and talk about how you do some of that in your in your classes at Georgetown, but the section under insurgency, where you walk through what you've asked your students, for example, what enabled the creation of the Cosa Nostra? Yeah. So what, how was it created? How did they succeed? Uh, how did they weaken? And um, I'm, I'm, ass- again, assumption's the wrong word, but I'm assuming that based on that, that's, that your that's your analysis with these other organizations. Cause a lot of the bullet points under each you could use, for Al-Qaeda, you could use for the Medellin cartel, uh, whatever yeah. organization Coney was involved in. But yeah. I thought that was an interesting way to sort of map it it's, out.
1: It's a great exercise and something that, uh, that the reader uh, hopefully will walk through when they read the book. But what I do in class is we, we read a, a book about the history of the Sicilian mafia in Sicily, the Cosa Nostra. Uh, written by John Dickey, called "Cosa Nostra." It's a, it's an excellent book if you're interested in the topic. It's a it's a history book, but it reads like a novel. It's a page turner, mm-hmm. and we so we read the entire you know 170 year history of the Sicilian mafia in, mafia in Sicily, and then we come into class and we run through this exercise where where I'm the note taker and the students lead the discussion on. Um, Describe the birth of the Cosa Nostra and why did this organization come into the existence and why were they successful in the first five or 10 years? If you think about businesses, businesses, you know, have a 50% chance or higher failure rate in the first 24 months. Um, and the Cosa Nostra was, and maybe still is, but definitely was one of the most successful organizations in the history of the world. They operated as a very powerful multinational uh, organization, criminal organization for over 150 years with plenty of people trying to put them out of business, competitors in the market, other criminal organizations, government agencies, international uh, government agencies, uh, banks have been in on it, and yet they operated successfully year over year over year. So that's why this is a case study. This is an organization that engaged, engaged in crime, insurgency, and terrorism acts related all three and they got away with it for 150 years so i would argue that this is an organization back to your very first point they were not they were not barbaric as a business model they might have engaged in barbaric acts but this is an organization that understood that uh, cro- that violence was a cost of doing business and not the purpose for the business so we go through the the three phases of the the creation the 150 years of smooth sailing of of, uh, of um, economic growth for this organization and then the decline of the organization. By the way, the decline of the Cosa Nostra happened when they started to lose public support, when the mafia wars, the internal fighting between the the, the crime families started to escalate. And they started to kill judges and prosecutors and the public really turned against them. And the state institutions became stronger um, to uh, engage in counter narratives to talk about how actually evil the Cosa Nostra was. And they weren't actually, um, you know, these, these solid uh, men of honor as they had been um, uh, claiming to be for all these years. If you take a story like that and you, we write it out on the board and then Think about any other violent organization you want to. It can it can be Al Qaeda, it can be the Sinaloa cartel, it could be the um, the the local uh, street gang in your part of the city. Um, the The attributes that describe the life cycle, the rise, operation, and decline of Cosa Nostra applies incredibly closely to almost any other illicit organization you could think of. Now, if that's a true statement, John, that's an amazing thing that gets really to the point that I'm trying to make that if that's true, if those attributes can apply to to um, Al Qaeda as equally as it can apply to the Sicilian mafia in Sicily, then there's something broader going on here that's not, hey, this is crime and it's different than insurgency and it's different than terrorism. There's something more fundamental to what it means to be human. That allows us to understand violence, insurgency, terrorism, crime, corruption in ways that we haven't been taking advantage of in the past.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting your um, descriptions of the Cosa Nostra. There's an analogy, as, as you point out in the book, to what Pablo Escobar did, because while he was paying for the death of policemen, uh, you get you get a different amount of money depending on how up high, how high up they were, those sorts of things. At some point, the government and the public, as as you said, pushed back and obviously peer organizations came after him. So that that was a pretty close analogy to how yeah. you described how the Kozinosia acted. So um, right. And, and you find that throughout. That's why I encourage folks to go through and read this for, for the descriptions that you've provided. And, you know, and I had forgotten some of this, some of these things, um, even though I was aware of all three individuals. So it was interesting to, to see your analysis and research. Um, I don't want to give away the prescriptions and the conclusions because I, you know, we want folks to read the book, but um, let me just say high level, that you close the book down by coming up with a couple of things that maybe you could just high level describe. You say, in order to improve national security, we should look at adversaries like a business executive, look at success, define it as appropriate to modern violence and market. So is it appropriate? Will it be successful to use it? And then finally, your last one, which wouldn't strike anybody as a, uh, as logical not from the standpoint of an AML person, but I, I loved how you characterize it. Fight like an entrepreneur, and if you could do those things, that perhaps uh, changing not just the narrative but the response to national security could be improved. Again, without giving away everything, as so we want folks to take a look at it, just give us some examples of of the those three items uh, and, and what you're looking for people to think about doing.
1: Um, yeah, thanks. I I will do that. I want to I want to hit on one last. Uh reaction to your, sure. um, to your point on, uh, you know, uh, 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 Pablo Escobar, um, he overstepped the way the Sicilian mafia overstepped, right? He was, you know, he right. was the number one, uh, most wanted drug trafficker in the world. And he walked down the streets of Medellin in broad daylight, um, until he couldn't do that anymore. Then there became a point at which he couldn't do that. So he started blowing up government buildings, he blew up the Avianca airliner. So um so there is a there is a point at which hubris um maybe came into play with Pablo or internal fighting in the case of the Cosa Nostra. But but there's a common theme which is that at some point these groups do tend to overstep and overreach. And that's usually the indication of a, of a turning, um, in, in the, um, in the introduction to the conclusions and prescriptions in the book, I start out with a quote from the Lord of the Rings, which is, um, when, um, there's this, if, and and maybe some Lord of the Rings fans are, are listening in on this, but there's this idea that there's this, there's this war and there's this battle taking place in the Lord of the Rings. And there's a, um, someone was just killed and there's uh, the bodies laying in front of them. And the Tolkien is asking us to consider the humanity of the combatant laying in front of us so where five minutes ago we were shooting at each other now he's dead his body's laying in front of us and and didn't that person have a have a family didn't that person have dreams and aspirations um and what caused that person to to engage in combat in battle engage in violence against us and i think that's a a very big and important point of this book which is nobody's nobody really um is is bound to become a drug trafficker or an insurgent or a terrorist there are choices that take place in people's lives and so we need to think about human behavior in market terms so we can understand that as opposed to thinking well drug traffickers are born that way or there's some some imbalance and, and you know, the way their mind processes things. I, I just outright reject all of that. I think that we need to think about the humanity uh, of the, the condition that each of us is in the human condition and try to understand how we got here. So if, if you're now, I'm going to answer your questions. What are the three, the three steps, if you want to address um, money laundering, drug trafficking, human trafficking. First of all, think about the. Let's let's go with uh, with drug trafficking. Think about the drug trafficking organization that you care about as if it was a firm operating in a marketplace led by an entrepreneur. So you want to think about the firm the way, let's say you're a, let's say that you're an investor and you're thinking about investing money in a firm. Well, you might want to understand. You know, what's the mission? Who's the leader of the firm? Uh, what's what's their product offering? What's the competition look like? What are their finances like? So just do regular business analytics as a business executive about the nature of the firm that you're trying to undermine. Um, second is define define victory in market terms. You know, uh, a couple of months ago, John, the United States killed the leader of the Iranian uh al-Quds forces and I wrote about it at the time and this is a great example of defining victory in market terms we killed the leader of the firm if you think about the Quds forces as a firm and the leader as the entrepreneur of that firm we killed the entrepreneur we killed the leader of the firm but you have to ask yourself well is that like what did that do to the market in which the Quds forces operate the Quds forces are the um aspect of the Iranian military that engages in international terrorism. They, they operate outside of Iran's borders and they kill and blow things up and kidnap people. Did we have an impact on the Quds forces by killing the leader or did we just move somebody out of the way? So the next three people in line can compete to try to get promoted to that job. And maybe somebody's going to be better than the person we killed. I don't know the answer to that, but that's the kind of, structured thinking i'm suggesting that we do is we think about the the kudz forces as a firm we think about defining victory in market terms meaning did we just kill an evil person which is okay if 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 that's the goal or did we undermine the firm or did we allow competing firms to take market share away Um, so the third thing is that we should fight like an entrepreneur so if we think about If we want to diminish the ability of Quds forces to exert power and influence in in Syria, for example, or in Israel or in Lebanon or somewhere, um, how do we compete against them as a firm competing against another firm? So that's the third point is fight like an entrepreneur. In, In economics literature, an entrepreneur is the person who makes resource allocation decisions so we make resource allocation decisions about the deployment of U.S. resources. Um, that includes the U.S. military, but it includes um, USAID, it includes a State Department, it includes access to international financial institutions. And John, it includes the ways in which we deal with and partner with financial institutions. And we have to think Broadly about all of these tools and not just our military terms, because that's what a good entrepreneur would do.
0: Well, Gary, I think people would definitely benefit from looking at your analysis. And as I said in in a review I did, uh, it's always valuable for the AML professional to get additional data points, if you will, which this clearly could be. So, in, in a couple of minutes that we have left, I know we could spend another long period of time on this, but uh, and maybe we'll do this again in the future. I want to get your initial reaction because you've testified about uh, the AML-CTF space. There's obviously legislation going on in the House and Senate, and given the environment, who knows if it's going to see the light of day in this particular congressional session. But there's been more action than I've seen since, frankly since the Patriot Act. Thematically, uh, as an outside observer, as an economist, somebody from the national security space, what do you think should be the focus? There could be many, but what do you think should be the overall focus of trying to reform an infrastructure that clearly has been around, I would argue, since the mid-80s? They say since 1970, but that's not really accurate. It really started with the Money Laundering Control Act and obviously been add-ons without any subtractions or modifications. Given your experience, what should be the focal point of trying to improve a, an infrastructure so that we can be better at deterrence, prevention, and, you know, re- re- response and be- being proactive.
1: So the, the key to this is thinking about money launderers and drug traffickers and human traffickers as humans. And I don't think we do that. I think we, we have a legacy system be- based upon rules which are rigid and don't change very frequently. And any self-respecting money launderer knows what all of those rules are and does a pretty good job of avoiding them. So we have a system today that is incredibly expensive to deploy and operate and incredibly inefficient at finding any um, money launderers or drug traffickers or terrorist financers um, that are sophisticated. Um, So I think we need to think about The marketplace for money laundering, drug trafficking, and all of these illicit activities is dynamic with adverse, with um, adaptive adversaries who change their pattern of behavior. But what we have available to us now in the world of machine learning is we have the ability to build tools that identify patterns of behavior very quickly. Um, As you know, Giant Oak, the company that I founded is heavily engaged in uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence for, uh, right. for AML and CDD and KYC purposes. Um, the concrete step, so the, the, the broad picture is we need to adopt technologies that can adapt to patterns of human behavior. And fortunately it exists in uh, uh, commercial companies, Facebook, Amazon, Google, they're all doing this. We can be doing this on the, um, on the financial crimes, AML, KYC side. Uh, no reason not to. The technology so is here and it exists. Um, how, so encourage encouraging innovation. which absolutely. is
0: one of the themes of the legislation. Innovation. and
1: specifically, that. let me give what what I think is the 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 most helpful, specific, concrete thing that we can do in the short term. And this comes back to where you opened up, John, which is collaboration. Um, right now, financial institutions generate SARS. They send them to FinCEN and FinCEN says, thank you very much. I've got it. Um, If you want to build a machine learning model that does a better job of identifying patterns of human behavior, that law enforcement and the national security community wants, then law enforcement and the national security community need to share what those patterns of behavior are with the banks. The banks can generate the data, but in, in, in technological terms, what we need to build models is called ground truth. So I need known money launderers to build a good model for known money for lo- money laundering. In the absence of that, I train my money laundering models on last year's SARS. Now, if last year's SARS are 95% wrong, then I'm using machine learning to train this year's model to generate 95% wrong data, but I'm doing it at, at a lower cost. That's not why we do this. We are engaged in a very noble mission, John. We are we are protecting the sanctity of the financial system so that way it's harder for people to launder money, kill things, blow things up. We're fighting to make ourselves and our communities and our families safer. That's not create bad, da- bad data at a cheaper cost. It's create good data. We need government and banks and regulators to work together to get good training data to the banks, so banks can build better models to send higher quality data to FinCEN.
0: No, that, that makes perfect sense. I was uh, one of the early uh, uh, drafters of what was then called the SAR Activity Review when I was at a different association. And it was some feedback. It wasn't like you're talking about. It wasn't data sliced and dice, but it was at least some attempt to give typologies and information back, and they stopped doing it. And, that, and we're way beyond that now. I mean, that was a publication that you read, and it was like a newsletter sort of thing. But So the concept made sense. They stopped doing it, and they do talk a lot about uh, that they look at data. As you and I both know, the FBI, Homeland Security, and IRS – they look at their SARS and they slice and dice those separately right. from FinCEN because they they so we're not working together on this thing. So I, I think overall uh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, my caution on not on what you said, but on general in this space is that the smaller banks unfortunately haven't had the access to uh, to the technology that they could use. But we could we could deal with that. That's we right. could figure that out. We could help the community Absolutely. banks and, and part of this.
1: I, I think. I think there's no shortage of enthusiasm for getting the community banks, um, you know, the technology they need at at prices that they can afford. That's going to happen. We need, you know, I've spent most of my career on the law enforcement, national security side, not, not on the banking side. Right. Um, and you're absolutely right everybody gets the data and they do, they do their own thing with it because I'm a drug trafficking counter drug trafficking mission and I'm a counter terrorism mission and we we fail to see the world through this collective lens that I'm suggesting of this is these are aspects of human behavior and the drug trafficker could be the terrorist could be the insurgent it could be Pablo Escobar is it's all three at once. So we've got to share the data oh. we've got to work together and the technology makes this so imperative right now, John, when, when you did the, the great work that, that you did on sharing typologies, we didn't have machine learning. We have machine learning now. It's, right. it's, um, uh, it, it's, it's terrible that we're not doing this today. It's just terrible that we're not doing this. We could be doing so much better. I agree. Uh,
0: Gary Schiffman, it's the economics of violence, how be- behavioral science can transform our view of crime, insurgency and terrorism, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Gary, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for sharing uh, your thoughts in the book, but also in general, your work uh, that your company and you've been doing. We appreciate it. And Thank you, John. And uh, thanks for all the safe. work
1: you've done through the years. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's been great uh, chatting with you and thanks for everything you've done.